Hi, I'm I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about no charges for Colbert's capital invasion staffers. Wade Miller joins me, NDAA and the vaccine mandate and Abbott's border policy. Both topics. Can't wait to have Wade on a joint to talk about that. Uh, Government and social media collusion, a ruling by a judge, of the 2024 presidential hopefuls and new pictures of our universe. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. Hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk through today's First Five. I'm Debbie George Addis. There was an announcement yesterday that the uh, people on Stephen Colbert's staff, the uh, late night talk show guy, uh, that his staff members who were caught having illegally entered the U.S. Capitol uh, would not be charged. They could have been charged with illegal entry, and um, they which and they've announced after looking into it, they're not going to do that. And the reason I raise it, I'm going to contrast that with uh, some people and one uh, person in particular who entered the Capitol on January 6th. Colbert staffers have entered illegally, and yet, of course, uh, they're not going to be charged. And part of the argument is, well, they really, you know, weren't doing anything wrong, and they, and and you know, they, and but I'm going to tell you the real reason, and I'm going to contrast it now with what um, is occurring with respect to the sentencing of one particular person uh, who did enter the Capitol. And again, if you do not yet read Julie Kelly, who writes at American Greatness, I urge you, she's joining me on the show, she's brilliant, uh, and she writes regularly. She's really kind of made this her focus since January of uh, 2021, looking into explaining the cases, the background, making comparisons about how American citizens are being treated by our Justice Department, the FBI, uh, who entered the Capitol or even got near the Capitol on January 6th. Julie Kelly points out there's a sentencing coming up now for a guy who happens to be from Texas. Guy, his name is Guy, first name Guy, Wesley Reffitt. And he was the first person to be prosecuted over entering the Capitol on January 6th. And he was a... um, the way that he's being described. So he's he had a trial. He, he was found guilty um, of a variety of charges related to entering the Capitol on January 6th. I want to just point out again, as I did yesterday, in Washington, D.C., the voting base is about 93 or 94% Republican. So the odds of anyone who obviously was at the Capitol on January 6th in some way in support of the Trump administration or challenging the um, accuracy of the election of 2020, uh, you're already pitted against a jury that is not your peers, a jury of who uh, made up people who hate Donald Trump. Anyway, so he was uh, sentenced, uh, excuse me, he was charged and he was convicted. Um, he was indicted on numerous offenses, and he's one of the ones spent more than a year in jail in Washington, D.C., um, and Julie uh, Kelly rightly calls it the gulag, the place that the uh, January 6th defendants are being held, at just, just uh, extremely um, onerous circumstances and conditions in the jailing for the January 6th people. But this guy was charged with two counts of civil disorder, two counts of obstruction, and one count of carrying a handgun on restricted grounds. Mind you, he didn't break anything, hit anybody, shoot anybody. Uh, He entered the Capitol. 
and he entered a time during the January 6th when the uh, constitutionally required event was occurring for the House and Senate to get together and, uh, and um, basically rubber stamp the Electoral College votes. So this guy, the reason that they're, in my view, the reason they're going after him so harshly, I'll tell you in a moment, so he gets, so he's convicted on all these charges I just mentioned, all those charges, um, and he, um, and he did, when he was in the Capitol, recorded himself making derogatory comments about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, before confronting Capitol Police on the steps of the building. Um, you know, but what really got the jury and got the prosecutor so mad about this guy is that he went back home to Texas, and well home, he was talking with his, his adult son, who, unbeknownst to this gentleman, Guy Reffitt, the son is secretly tape recording him and basically celebrating the, the fact that they were in Washington uh, and trying to make a statement about the uh, fraud of the January 20, uh, excuse me, the November 2020 elections. So this guy who entered the Capitol and, you know, did not shoot anybody, kill anybody, had one confrontational conversation with the police officers, the sentencing, uh, you do memos. I mean, the prosecutor and the uh, defense attorney both submit memorandums to the court uh, with respect to recommended sentencing. The prosecutor is actually suggesting in this case, actually suggesting that he be sentenced to 16 years in prison. I want you to think about that. 16 years, there are murderers who don't serve that long. But this guy is seen as a symbol by the Department of Justice and by the whole cabal in Washington who are trying to send the, you know, death to Donald Trump to ever let him run again message. He is fearing and facing a very, very long sentence. But that's not even the most offensive part. The most offensive part, when I want to close this first five um, today on, on this point, is saying this. The Justice Department, you know, there's a the federal, the felony which people are being charged with who enter the Capitol has to do is it's obstruction of an official proceeding. Obstruction of an official proceeding. So it wasn't just that they entered the Capitol or entered a restricted area or were, you know, uh, they also have unlawful uh, parading is one of the charges that is being made against January 6th people. But they're talking about the these people went there on January 6th to express their, you know, First Amendment rights, to express their views that they were intending to disrupt the proceeding that was to uh, rubber stamp or not the state's electoral college turnout. That was the, the event happening there in Washington that day. So they're, they're up, they're speaking, they're, they're against what the uh, Congress is about to do, and they believe strongly that the election was not valid of 2020. But the Department of Justice, in making this recommendation in that this guy served 16 years in prison, are equating obstruction of an official proceeding with an act of terrorism. And I'm telling you, this thinking, this idea that we're going to pile on everything we can against everyone who entered the Capitol, many being charged who didn't even enter the Capitol, pile on, you know, have the break down your door in the middle of the night by the FBI with rifles blazing, all of that occurring. Um, this is a, I mean, a grotesque, grotesque, uh, over-prosecution, uh, out, outlandish sentencing uh, recommendation by the Justice Department. And that it's not tied to the fact that this guy behaved particularly badly. It's tied to what he believes. It's tied to what he thinks. It's not an act of terror to speak and say, 
I think the 2020 election was stolen. I think there was outrageous election fraud. But I'm getting at the point, understanding how we lose the rule of law in a country if the Justice Department in America, and the same thing is true if it occurs on the state level and, and state level prosecutions, if they're motivated by a political agenda, motivated by a political ideology that says we must shut these people down, they must understand they can never complain about election fraud again, they can never speak up and they, they lost their right to do this, this is the loss of the rule of law and replacement with the blind, the idea of blind justice, equal application of law to all, and instead the idea that once you have the anti-American left in power in Washington, they will use all forces available to them to shut down, punish, forever silence their political opponents. It's political abuse of the justice system to even be suggesting this kind of sentence for a guy who walked in the Capitol along with many others. And as I mentioned on this show, uh, we have two women who are fed, in fact, one's already there, the 69-year-old grandmother headed to jail for 60 days for walking in the Capitol and walking out. Dr. Simone Gold, a friend of mine, been on the show numerous times, she entered the Capitol, she walked out, she read her little speech and walked out. She is going to head to federal prison for 60 days for entering the Capitol. And I understand Colbert's people were not there in Washington, back to our late night talk show goofball. He didn't, and they didn't enter the Capitol with the point of making a uh, political statement. They were just there setting up surreptitiously what they wanted to do. But the contrast and how they're being treated by our justice system ought to alarm every American of every background, every political leaning, the idea that our justice system is now being accused, being used and abused by those holding power to attack people who don't support them. And that, my very fine friends, is today's First Five. I mentioned we have joining us Wade Miller. He's joined us numerous times, uh, and so he's coming on with us in just a moment here. Uh, Wade has a wonderful, there he is. Uh, Wade has a wonderful background uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, very quickly, I met him through his work at the Heritage Foundation. He was always extremely knowledgeable about every bill going, making his way through Congress and who was backing it, and whether it was good, and whether it was bad. What was gonna, so I learned a lot from him just then. Uh, after that time, he uh, began working, I, I can't remember the sequence, but he worked for Ted Cruz, Who's the you know the um, he's actually the real senior senator from Texas, even though Corn has been there longer. But he's the conservative uh, senator from Texas that so worked for Ted Cruz, worked for Congressman Chip Roy. Um, he's been in the uh, just the arena of ideas and, and the political um, world in Washington, and now he works for. And Wade, I'm going to tell you, I'm sorry, I'm going to miss. I'm probably going to say the name of your organization wrong. The Center for American Renewal. You may correct me as soon as you come on. Tell me the correct name. You're working for Russ Vote, who's a wonderful guy. Formed a great organization after his time uh, serving as President Trump's uh, manager of the of uh, uh, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, heading that up. And he's now in Washington working with him. So let's bring on Wade Miller. Thank you very much. And it's uh, Center for Renewing America. So no worries. You almost got it. I almost got it. Center for Renewing America. As I was uh, not speeding, but racing down to the studio from our new home way, 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 way out in the country, um, I was realizing mental got that name. I don't want to say it incorrectly. So, Wade, I, when I asked you to come to the show today, I mean, you know so much going on in Washington on everything, but I want to hone in on two things, two issues today. Although, if you want to take one minute and tell about the Center for Renewing America, I'd love to have you do that. Tell about your organization, and then we're going to hit our two issues. 
Yeah, sure. So real quick, uh, Russ Vogt was the OMB director for President Trump. And on the way out of the administration, he had a conversation with President Trump and he wanted to set up a home to kind of uh, foster and continue to uh, uh, push forward and develop a lot of the ideas on what they wanted to do once they were finally starting to get uh, a work out how to push through the deep state bureaucracy. Of course, the president, uh, that, that term came to an end uh, uh, through, you know, everyone knows the 2020 election cycle. Uh, and so they wanted to continue to develop those ideas, continue to develop the, the, the fight uh, on our, for our culture. Uh, we know that the left is, is uh, picking a lot of battles there. And so uh, Russ poached me from the great representative Chip Roy as his chief of staff to come over and be the executive director for Citizens for Renewing America, which is the activist component of the 501c4. And so we've been very active on trying to get uh, uh, border governors to do uh, to declare an invasion. We've been working on critical race theory and all sorts of woke uh, ideology and, and basically the full spectrum of America first policy. That was a great description. And your website is center? Uh, uh, AmericaRenewing.com. AmericaRenewing.com. Okay. Well, the reason I reached out to you, um, and I will, one of the things I meant to say in introducing you, you have a wonderful capacity to assess the situation and the issues that are being addressed in some legislation or some policy discussion and really distilling down why they matter and also writing them in a way that the average person who isn't necessarily a complete policy wonk can follow what you're saying. So I really appreciate that skill you have, and I urge people to go to your website and re read the things you put out. But we t I want to talk about the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And it was recently, there was a bill passed in the House, which was essentially refunding uh, the military, which conservatives usually really like. Uh, but this is happening at a time when we have people, uh, American service, members of our service, uh, men and women, uh, who are being removed from the service because of their uh, desire to not take the COVID vaccination which I can completely understand because we've talked in the show many times about the unbelievable danger of the vaccination, side effects, and, and that you know individuals have the right to make their own decisions. So there is a question being discussed about whether or not conservatives, Republicans, who love the military, want to help the military, should have voted no on this NDAA authorization with the intent of sending the message that we don't like what the military is doing to its members, forcing vaccinations or else kicking them out, uh, or just vote yes and overlook that and overlook the fact what the military is doing with respect to vaccination. So I'd love to have you share what you think uh, the conservative answer should have been uh, among members of Congress on this vote. Sure. So I, I think that, you know, let's back up here. And, and I think everyone should acknowledge that DOD, the Department of Defense, has been going way off the rails for quite some time. And it's very problematic. We're no longer debating you know, base realignments. Uh, we're no longer debating really weapon systems uh, development, You know, this artillery piece versus more airplanes. Those types of debates are not central to uh, what we're really discussing when it comes to an NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is what funds uh, a lot of the DOD bureaucracy uh, uh, every year. The big problem we have now is that the entire bureaucracy has gone woke. We have terrible morale within our troops. Um, recruitment is way down. They continue to push all sorts of green policy agenda, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, critical race theory. It's, it's permeating all of our ranks. Uh, the senior command level is just infected 
in a way that it could take generations to really root it out and fix. So the, 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 the main thrust of the debate now is <clears throat> we need major policy changes in NDA. So we're no longer in a position where we have to vote for this, even if we have minor disagreements, because it's just how we fund the military and that's really important. At a certain point, we have to put our foot down. And so one part that was really uh, you know, important on this is the fact that DOD policy currently is to discharge people who do not get the COVID vaccine. Now, there's no real science to back up, no longitudinal data to suggest that this is a necessary measure for troop readiness. In other words, uh, this is a young, healthy population. Uh, the, the, the shot itself does very little to reduce transmissions, which is why we still have high levels of transmission, even though we have a lot of people in the, in the country that have had the shot. And in this age population, they don't really th face a real significant threat in terms of symptoms or mortality. So what are we really talking about here? We're talking about ruining the lives and livelihoods of tens of thousands, upwards of 60,000 of our troops because they don't want to get an untested shot. This isn't like other shots that they get that have been in, in the works for decades that have lots of longitudinal data. We know the risk factors. Uh, we know all of the, the safety uh, uh, data. We know the, the side effects and the, the risk of those uh, uh, you know, coming to fruition. I myself had nerve damage from a, a shot in the military, but this was a very rare occurrence, like one in a million uh, type of, uh, of, of side effects. So the NDAA funds the entire bureaucracy and the processes that it would take to go through to actually uh, administratively discharge these troops. And so we had members of Congress saying, well, no, there was nothing in the bill that authorized the firing of these troops. Well, that's just not true. I mean, I mean by funding DOD, you are funding the ability for the administrative state of, of DOD to actually process all these things and, to, and, to, and put it into fruition. And in fact, there actually was language in the bill that extended the timeline indefinitely, which mandated that they couldn't be dishonorably discharged. There had to be an honorable discharge or another form of discharge that was less severe than a dishonorable. And they tried to hang their hat on that as a protection. But let me tell you, if I love my job and I'm putting food on my table to support my family and I'm dishonorably discharged, I'm still being fired. And so just as a, as, as a matter of, of, of a funding mechanism and then a matter of actual policy, if you don't want these troops to be fired, this is your leverage. This is the bill that you put your foot down. And I, and I would argue that, look, I, I understand for a lot of members of Congress that this is a tough vote. And, and, but I do think that they had a duty to put their foot down, say no, and be clear why they're saying no, because they don't want to fire these troops and, and they don't want to fund a woke bureaucracy. And then also, uh, uh, even if they would have lost that vote, the entire purpose of, of fighting it in the House was also to give the Senate the uh, uh, kind of the communications leverage they needed to force amendment votes on the Senate side because of their deadlock there. So the more that the House stands up and, and, and uses its voice of opposition to a bill, the harder it is for the Senate to just rubber stamp it. Uh, it would force McConnell and Schumer to come to the table and perhaps offer amendments on this. And look, even if we lost the amendment vote there, at least we have uh, Democrat senators on the record as to whether they think these troops should be fired or not. And I think the vast majority of the American people do not think that just because someone doesn't want to get a COVID shot or the 15th shot or whatever number they're on right now, 
that still provides very little protection and doesn't reduce transmissions, should their lives be ruined? Should they be fired from a job they loved serving their country after the U.S. taxpayers spent millions of dollars training them? I think that collectively the answer is no. They don't want that. And Republicans should stand up and say so. Yeah, you covered a lot of points in there. And I want to uh, quickly kind of bullet point them because they were all, everything you said was just so important and so right. If you're a member of Congress, especially on the Republican side, and you're known as pro-strong military, pro-national defense, your, your gut reaction is, yeah, you vote to fund, you might try to get an amendment in to push some little some issue here or there, uh, whether it's a base uh, closure or not, or some weapon system. But you want to be seen as, because you actually believe in the military, you want to be seen as supporting it. But the threats the military is facing right now, really from their own leadership and leadership policies, the wokeism, the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, the pronoun weekends, we spend weekend discussing your pronouns and, and your transgender status. I mean, people can see America's military being weakened and being uh, hollowed out, emasculated, whatever word you want to use. And when you're a member of Congress, even though you're generally speaking, want to support the military, this was their chance, you're saying, this was their chance to say, we're so concerned about the military and especially about these vaccine mandates are going to force people to choose between military. If they won't get the vaccine, they're going to be kicked out of the military. They're not going to have a job anymore. It was an opportunity for people, even if, you, if you're a Republican in the House, you know you're not going to win. The Democrats have the votes to win, but you had an opportunity to take a stand. Is that about right? Yeah, uh, we have other opportunities, but they're very limited. This was the big one. Uh, any type of major funding bill, I think that the that Congress should push this as a requirement. But yeah, I, I don't think that we can hide behind our veterans as an excuse that we need to support them by firing 60,000 veterans. The, the logic of that does, just doesn't make any sense to me. I think that if you want to support our veterans, you need to oppose bills like this that continue to impose woke ideology on them and fire them because they won't play uh, uh, politics and, and, and follow Lord Fauci and, and the medical establishment that has made zero uh, uh, really uh, progress in convincing me that the COVID shot itself is necessary. There's other immunizations the military gets that are effective and, and very good for force readiness. The COVID shot just isn't one at all, not even close. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I've been talking more and more on this show, but I'm always saying stand up and speak up for America. Well, members of Congress, even though the Republicans don't have a majority in either house, you know, one way you do that is by locking arms and issue a joint statement, show up on the steps of the Capitol, say we, you know, I mean, put it out there. So you're letting America know why we could not support this NDAA bill. There, there's ways you can choose if you're feeling strong enough and determine, have enough back, a spine or backbone and determine enough to make your, your, not just your no vote known, but why, what you're so concerned about. Because I will say the more familiar people are with the military in America, the more concerned they are to what this administration and actually the woke ideology that permeated higher levels of the administration start of the uh, military back into, at least back until the Biden administration, I mean, the Obama administration, where he was weeding out the patriots and leaving in the leftists. So, um, yeah, it, it was, and so I was going to say, I wanted to, I guess you kind of answered, and I'm going to turn to Governor Abbott and our border policy, but I thought it was really, there was a statement put out by one of the member, Republican members 
who decided to go ahead and vote for the NDAA, and he was not liking this. Uh, this is uh, U.S. Representative Crenshaw from the great state of Texas. He put out some statement saying, well, there's nothing in the bill that directly says, uh, yes, go ahead and fire the, uh, those or, or take remove people from the military if they didn't get the vaccine. The bill doesn't say that. So he was trying to say, I didn't vote for that, but you handle it well. And just a quick summary again of it, you're basically saying, when you fund the DOD and you know that's their policy, they are, they're using the money you are funding them with to execute the policy, even though it's not spelled out in the bill. Correct. The, the NDAA bill is an opportunity to change underlying policy or to refuse to provide funds for existing policies that you don't support. He decided not to do that, and he's pushing out what either he doesn't understand how NDAA legislation works or he's just being politically manipulative to his voters because he doesn't want to have to explain how he voted. And I'll just say this, it's not an easy vote. I get that. And, and if members of Congress want to say, look, I did vote for it, it does do this, and here's why, and but I'll continue to fight on it, and I share your concerns. I get that. I would probably still disagree with them, but I think that that would be the honest way to go about it. Right. I think that the, the way he approached this just wasn't uh, honest. Yeah, it was, it was uh, misleading, for sure misleading. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, and I do think people are looking for leaders in America, conservatives around the country. I don't want to say conservatives, you know, Main Street, Main Street, you know, Main Street, mainstream Apple Pie Americans are looking for someone to stand up. This would have been a good opportunity for people. They're looking for leaders in Washington who will speak up. And this would have been a great opportunity. Okay, I'll turn to you before we get to our next topic on Governor Abbott. For our radio listeners, at the bottom of the hour, 30 minutes past the hour, you go to a break. I want to tell you that we're going to keep right on rolling while you're gone. It's only three minutes. Do not go away. Come back after our break, a whole other half an hour. And thank you for listening uh, on, to the show on radio. Thank you to Brighty and Radio for carrying this show. Don't go away. And at the top of the hour, three minutes before the end of the show, uh, you'll also go off to your um, ads. But you can always catch up on this show by going to our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org. You can watch it live there. You can watch it later, watch past interviews, catch up with everything. Okay, so back to Mr. Miller. Okay, um, but actually, before I get to, I want to talk about Governor Abbott, but wait, I, I meant, I should have introduced, I was trying to wing it on your introduction. You also served in the Marines. You want to quickly tell us about your experience in the Marines, and then we'll turn to Governor Abbott? Sure. So uh, I experienced 9-11 like a lot of other people, so, watched it on TV and saw it all day. And I, so I dropped out of college, uh, uh, joined the Marine Corps, volunteered to be in the infantry, and then I deployed three times as a, a Marine infantry, uh, uh, eventually made it to sergeant and into a squad leader. Uh, and I did that for five years. The reason I love that is because I, I do talk about the military a lot in the show. I love our military. I'm so grateful for them. I want to support military families. But when you have served as you have, and in, in recent times, you're, you're not, you know, not decades ago, you have a real familiarity with um, what's required to serve in the military and what a great sacrifice it is for people to serve in the military. Um, I was going to tell you, my husband and I watched uh, the movie Hacksaw Ridge. Have you ever seen Hacksaw Ridge? Oh, my gosh. We watched it. I did nothing that cool. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? Good movie. I, it was a fabulous movie, but it was a good reminder for people, if you haven't seen that film, you know, what we talk about our military doing, when you think of what they really have to do encounter on the battlefield and may have to again in future wars, uh, you want these people to be bonded. You want them to have 
full trust in their unit. You don't want to have them divided by diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, just garbage, hogwash, uh, woke ideology. And that movie was, it's, real, it's really quite a tribute to uh, many of the people involved in that story, but it did make you realize the realities of war and how grateful we should be for our military. Okay, now I'll turn to Governor Abbott. So here we are in the great state of Texas, and I do have people because uh, we we go to California fairly often and other places would say, oh, you're so lucky you have Governor Abbott. Um, yeah, so he's our governor. He, he is a Republican. He recently announced a policy that he was touting as uh, really a strengthening our position at the border. And I, <clears throat> I know part of what you posted was your reaction to it. I just want to let you rock and roll. What, what did Abbott announce and what's your reception, your uh, assessment of it? Sure. So he's been increasingly getting heat from a lot of different sources to declare an invasion. And so he put an, EO, an executive order out, an EO, uh, basically trying to make it look like he was declaring an invasion. He referenced Article 4, Section 4, which is to say that President Biden is not upholding his duty to secure the border and the, uh, to secure states from an invasion. He referenced Article 1, Section 10. He did not uh, recognize more specifically Clause 3, the invasion clause. And in fact, the reading of it leads me to think that he was referring to interstate compacts, not the invasion clause that he would have as a, as a governor. So it was very well written to kind of uh, hide what he was actually doing from people who maybe don't have as much experience with kind of the legal aspects of what we're, we're calling for. So a lot of people initially within the first 10, 20 minutes thought, hey, he's doing it. This is great. This is fantastic news. The problem is, is that when we started looking into it, he was basically relying on old case law, uh, USV Arizona carve out of that to say that we're going to use National Guard troops to transport uh, border crossers to the border. And the reason that to the border part of it is important is because when he's saying that, that means he's going to just drop them off with federal authorities, which means that they're going to be processed and released into the interior. So there's no real material change here uh, other than you could actually say that this expedites the catch and release process because by using state tax dollars to now gather up and bring them to areas where the feds have more resources, more facilities, more personnel, uh, that's going to expedite the, the, the move uh, by uh, the Biden administration to just Process, process these people and release them into the interior as they wait for their asylum claims to be heard by judges. And a lot of them, of course, will never show up to their final uh, uh, hearings. They just kind of disappear into the interior. And so the net effect of this executive order was that it did almost nothing, uh, I, nothing that was any real different from uh, past policy, although it was made to sound like he was satisfying the conditions. And this leads me to be concerned that he may try to do this once again in the form of declaring, actually declaring an invasion, but only limiting it to cartels and transnational gangs. And of course, if he does that, then that basically means that the state really isn't going to secure the border still. I mean, what, what Governor Abbott has to do, he needs to do, is he needs to declare an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, and, 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 and define the entirety of what is occurring on the border as the invasion. In other words, the cartels are using hundreds of thousands, millions of illegal border crossers as part of their toolkit to, to basically get done with what, what they're doing on the border, which like, let me give you an example. They'll send 5,000 people across the border and tie up all of the DPS, the state agents, the federal agents and processing and catching them and, 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 and all of the, uh, the logistics you need to do that. 
And then 23 miles upstream, they'll pass four guys across the river with backpacks full of fentanyl, knowing that they're going to get across because all of the agents that, uh, that are in the sector are already in another area. So the entirety of what is happening on the border is an invasion. And what we are asking Governor Abbott is no cute executive orders that kind of uh, halfway do it or try to pretend like they're doing it. We need him to actually take leadership and actually declare an invasion, lock down the border, return people across the border. And that needs to be clear in the executive order that state agents are empowered under, under this Article One power that belongs to governors to actually return people across the border back into Mexico and drop them off. And they just need to continue to do this over and over. And eventually people are going to stop trying to cross because they realize that it's going to be futile. They're not going to be processed. They're not going to be led into the interior. If they want to file an asylum claim, they need to go to an actual port of entry and do so uh, with the legal means available to them. No more coming across the border illegally and then trying to do it. That was so well said. And I, want to, um, and I, I know I'm watching your time. Um, I will say quickly, you're referring to Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the U.S. Constitution, which permits states to say, to declare an insurrection and, excuse me, an invasion. And so we have in Texas, um, as I've recounted many, many times and shown many videos and pictures, I mean, there's just, it, we have a completely porous border. So backing up to be sure. And the Texas Constitution allows this too, Article 4, Section 7. Okay, and the Texas, oh, great, okay. So Governor Abbott had the opportunity to take actually effective action in declaring under the U.S. Constitution provision and the Texas one that there is an invasion and have his action result in by the way the order would have been spelled out to say, when we catch you, we're depositing you on the other side of the border. I mean, we're moving you back to Mexico. But what happened instead was, under the way his order was written, uh, was it, it has the appearance of doing something, but it's actually just expediting the speed with which you have P the Texas National Guard taking uh, illegal aliens back to the border, but then handing them off to the U.S. authorities, which, as we've all been talking about, are the Biden people who have no commitment or interest in enforcing the border. So you're actually making it faster for these people to get sent back into the American interior and disappear. And so it was a, it was a um, what's a good word, ruse. It was a ruse to give the public appearance of doing something effective when it wasn't really effective at all. Is Correct. He couched all of this under immigration law precedent. And as long as he does something under immigration law, the state is really constrained based on past precedent. Now we should challenge that, get court standing. Those were bad cases that were decided. But as long as he's doing that, he's kind of he's uh, uh, limiting his ability to do stuff. The reason Title 42 was so effective in the Trump administration is because it wasn't immigration law. It was a public health authority. Similarly, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 is not immigration law. So any action taken underneath that is separate from all that. It, it's not subservient to the court cases. And so what we need from Governor Abbott is not to put out an executive order that pretends to use a lot of the nice words that we want to hear but couches it in the wrong authority. We need him to actually say, I'm declaring an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. And pursuant to that, our state agents are going to uh, 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 stop people at the border and return them right back across. Okay, I know, Wade, um, we're probably out of time at your end, but you guys wrote something about this. I think, in fact, I think I interviewed you one time. You had a piece uh, written by you or others at the Center for Renewing America uh, where you were talking about this is a, is a simple solution available to the state governments in this era where the federal government has no interest in enforcing the border. So, the, the, I mean, 
it's been laid out and, and others have commented on as well. So, I mean, it's, I, I guess I'm going to not put you on the hook and ask you what would possibly motivate Governor Abbott to not do the effective thing and instead do. I'll pontificate about that after we're done, but why would you do something that gives the appearance of, of effectively dealing with a border problem, but not really doing it, not actually having that impact? And and if you want to comment on that, otherwise. Um... So, well, I, I will, actually. I, I think that he is hesitant to do anything that is seen as politically risky because I think that right. their team's political mindset is to target certain demographics, which are more in the center of the political model. And I, I think that's a mistake. I think that when you talk about the border the right way, it actually does pull well in those demographics. If you're talking about protecting uh, families from uh, fentanyl overdoses, uh, if you're talking about stopping child sex trafficking, stopping cartels from uh, uh, abusing, raping, and murdering migrants, then I think that that's a message that the, a lot of Texas voters will will, uh, will find appealing and want to support. And so I'd urge uh, Governor Abbott to, to relook at and, and reassess uh, the political calculation here and, and to actually take a take a, a step forward on it. And, and if he does, we will support him all the way. Wade Miller, as usual, just wonderful to see you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're available to talk to us today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to see you, sir. Okay, so folks, I'm going to uh, tell you on that um, subject, this organization that Wade's working with, the Center for Renewing Amer American Renewal, uh, they are just putting out, as you hear when you hear him speak, he's not, it's not just a bullet point or a high-level kind of slogan-slinging, you know, kind of superficial slogan-slinging. It's substantive, serious assessment. They go into the kind of examples he was giving you a moment ago. Uh, they write out what the options are for a governor like Governor Abbott. If you actually wanted to secure the border and you actually were trying to enforce the law, you wouldn't do what he did. And I and so I really commend that organization, Wade Miller, uh, Russ Vote, who's uh, in charge, the uh, head of that, uh, just stepping up and saying what's really true. So so grateful for them. Okay, I had this. I call this government and social media collusion. I want to quick hit the story. There's very little to it right now, um, but um, there is an interesting uh, piece of litigation going on. And um, there are governors and uh, Republican attorneys general in two states, Missouri and Louisiana, I think it is. Uh, yeah, yeah, Missouri and Louisiana. And they basically are suing the Biden administration and talking about how there is collusion, collusion between the Biden administration and the social media giants. And I mean, you're probably listening to this saying, yeah, you think so? I mean, obviously the social media big gurus, uh, they, they just run the Democrat party line. It's not really Biden colluding as much as the entire Democrat monolithic behemoth that is in Washington and around the country, colluding with the social media giants. And so suppressing stories, uh, accentuating other ones, they, these people, the lawsuit is over the question of whether Biden's collusion with the social media giants constitutes an effort to censor and suppress free speech. The news on this piece of litigation right now is that a judge, I believe it was a Trump, yeah, Trump appointed judge, um, actually agreed with the plaintiffs that there should be discovery, meaning forcing the U.S. government to disclose its communications with the social media giants. And so, of course, all this, you know, the government wants to have some kind of privilege or some other reason. We can't, we can't be showing you what we should. But, you know, you have, you have 
people in Washington, when I say Biden administration, I mean broadly. There have been the bureaucracy that is the Biden administration uh, spreading out through FBI, DOJ, all of the entities controlled by the Democrats. There is a nonstop circulation of, you know, well, here's the narrative. Here's how we're going to push it. Here's what to say. And, and the social media giants seem to comply. And so these two uh, attorneys general, the two governors and attorneys general of the two states just said, You're, the, the net of that is that the federal government is suppressing free speech. It's a brilliant argument, and it's, I mean, it's like almost intuitively true. It's like, you think? So anyway, that was a great thing. Uh, the uh, judge has ordered discovery. I understand there's going to be uh, an effort to appeal that order before discovery is given, because once you realize, I mean, you think, anyone, any of you sitting there, you think you listen, you go on social media of any kind, and you type in, you know, some question you want to know the answer to. And if what you get are consistent messages that all parallel each other, you think, oh, I've, I've understood that issue. Now I figured out that issue. When the fact is, you're hearing the echo chamber out of the government. And when the government is involved in controlling information and communication at that level, what they, they really are doing is censoring and regulating free speech. I love it. This, this uh, judge is ordering discovery, made an expedited discovery schedule, which is going to make the lawyers nuts because they're going to say, yeah, you're actually just going to comply. You're not going to drag it out for years and years and pretend to comply. And it, you're going to do it. It's an expedited order of the preliminary injunction impending. So uh, I, I think that's a great little bit of news. All right. So I want to uh, talk briefly about the presidential hopefuls in 2024. So there's a lot of talk, a lot of talk about Governor, excuse me, about uh, President Trump uh, going to make an announcement this coming Monday in Washington. There's a meeting in Washington um, of his, you know, his organization, AFPI, America First Policies Institute, which was an organization that grew out of the Trump White House. Uh, many of the high-level people who are, in fact, all the high-level people in that organization are former Trump officials, um, and they are pushing policies to continue the Make America Great agenda. So America, AFPI, um, America First Policy Institute, and they're having a gathering in Washington, and, um, and it is assumed, or it has been announced that President Trump will be speaking there on Monday, and it's assumed he may make an announcement related to whether he's going to run for president again in 2024. And all I want to posit on that subject uh, is this. There are all sorts of norms that, you know, if you involve politically and you read uh, and you hear things, you read things, you talk to consultants, you know, there are all these norms about, well, you know, you don't want to declare too early. It gives the other side, you know, the, your potential primary opponents a longer time to pick at you. Other people say, no, you want to declare early because you want to be the one and the other people who get in, in the primary after you are interfering with you. Um, and I mean, just all sorts of arguments and about the wisdom when you get in. And, um, and, and those have some validity in nearly every case. In this case, none of those rules apply. None. Not any of them. Uh, number one, government, governor, I mean, excuse me, President Trump is a known entity. Everyone knows what he stands for. Everyone knows the policies he, he brought to bear. Everyone either loves the policies or they don't love the policies. But they, they know what Trump did. And even if they hated his tweets and disliked his personal life and whatever they else had to say about him, you know, America was in a great, great place at the end, even after having a year of COVID 
you know, interfering with America and the world. Uh, America was in a great place in terms of employment, inflation. Uh, America was strong, respected by the world again, standing up, fixing uh, treaties that, that made things fairer for American workers. I mean, America, the whole America First agenda really was, we were in a great place. And then we had, you know, uh, we had he who was uh, installed on January 20th, 2021, Biden, as you know, has basically reversed everything Biden did, everything Trump did. Biden has reversed everything Trump did uh, that he can possibly do. So here we are at this point, we're going to have the midterm elections uh, in November. And, you know, great, great concern by the more informed you are, the more concerned you are that we may not have fair elections. People are very concerned. I, I mean, the public mood is they cannot wait to get the Democrats out of power, can't wait to get Biden out of there, can't wait to get Kamala Harris out of there, can't wait to get Pelosi, Pelosi and Schumer and all of them out because what they're doing to America is so destructive. You know, we have the, the ridiculous inflation rates, people, and, and ridiculous gas prices. We have tyranny spewing out, you know, regulating speech, threatening people who dare disagree with them with being considered terrorists. We have an absolutely abandoned southern border. I mean, it's, it's a debacle. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's intentionally created chaos. So I'm getting around to saying that I think if we can have fair elections in November of 2022, you will see Republicans sweep, you know, from the lowest level, you know, dog catcher to president, or oh, the president's not on the ballot then, but dog catcher to House and Senate, everybody who can possibly, I mean, you'll, you'll see a great sweep. And not the really radical left states that always go leftist, but in great part, you're going to see America trying to defend itself against the, uh, just, just the uh, wrecking ball that is the wrecking operation that is the Biden administration. So back to President Trump. I don't know if he's going to declare on this coming Monday. I, my guess would be yes. I think he's going to run again. And I think, I will tell you that I have, I have two different avenues of people who are friends of mine who, who speak with him regularly. Uh, one says for sure he's going to declare. Other one says, no, he's not. I don't know what he's going to do. But I will say all these people who are trying to say, well, Trump shouldn't declare this early. He shouldn't do it. You're just going to, in fact, there was, uh, there was a political consultants, even the Republican side saying, you know, Trump ought to just pipe down, just, just let things go for a while. He can decide next year. He doesn't have to announce now. But I, I, I don't agree with that at all. I think what's happening is there are Republicans who want to run for president. I think eventually Governor DeSantis of Florida will do it. Uh, clearly, Christian Noam of South Dakota is, uh, you know, she's already up in Iowa talking away to people. There are, there's a list of people who may want to run for president in 2024 on the Republican side. I think the earlier Trump declares the sooner those people can really assess their chances and, and their willingness to immerse themselves in that battle. Um, if, uh, if, if Trump is going to run, they can decide, do I really want to be in that mess or not? Because there are many presidential elections to follow after 2024. I think Trump strategically is thinking, go ahead and, and get in now, make it clear to all of these other potential candidates, you know, potential Republican candidates for president that, you know, he's going to run and they'll have to do the calculation of whether or not it's worth it to them. The political, you know, upside, downside, um, it, it's a different calculation for them, for each of them about running in 2024 uh, if, if Trump is in the race. But the other reason I think that he might declare is, there is growing talk among the Democrats, the idea that this January 6th Inquisition Committee, 
the January 6th Inquisition Committee is actually contemplating, see, determining if they can recommend that, the, that President Trump be indicted for insurrection based on the January 6th episode of last year. There are certainly the, um, you know, Adam Schiffless and other people of his uh, ilk have been, you know, spouting off about that on various places, saying essentially, yeah, they, you know, they, they really think they probably are pretty close. They might have enough. And, and I'm telling you that I think Trump is smarter to have announced he's going to run, to say, yep, I'm going to do it. And then, because I, I do think whether or not Trump has officially declared anything, if the Democrats decide to push for an indictment of President Trump based on January 6th of last year to try to push for an indictment, obviously January 6th committee, these are members of Congress, they cannot indict, but they can release their findings, they can urge uh, prosecution uh, by the Department of Justice on insurrection charges. Um, I am telling you, I cannot fathom how foolish, I can't even say it in words, and I say a lot of words, I can't even you know, find enough adequate words to tell you how profoundly foolish and dangerous that would be if the Democrats really push this idea of indicting Trump. You think America's divided now? You think people are frustrated over gas prices and inflation and the border and, and just the utter fecklessness and foolishness of the Biden administration? The idea of going after Trump, attempting an indictment of him in October because they're mad because he's popular or they're, they can't. I mean, because the January 6th Inquisition Committee is really coming up with pretty much zip, zero, nada, nothing. That's what they're coming up with. They keep trying to find some, you know, hidden nugget that's going to prove, see, see, you know, Trump orchestrated the whole thing. It's not happening. It is not happening. They have been digging and, 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 you know, hassling people and breaking down doors. They haven't done it personally. They have the FBI helping, but... I'm getting at the point the January 6th committee has pretty much come up with nothing. Polling shows, even when you ask people the top issues you're facing in this country, top 22 issues, the January 6th thing and the January 6th committee doesn't even make people's radar. Doesn't even make their radar. What people are concerned about today in America are the ridiculous, anti-American, destructive of America policies spewing out of the Biden administration and the Democrat-held uh, government in Washington, and they can't wait to get rid of them. So I think it would be foolish beyond words for the Democrats to decide that they are going to actually attempt to push the indictment of Donald Trump for insurrection. There's no basis for it. It doesn't meet the standard. Plenty of even left-wing lawyers and, and, and political pundits have pointed out there's, you, can't, you can't charge Trump for insurrection. But I think on that calculation, you know, if he's actually a candidate by them, and then they decide, yeah, you know, you're, you're the top, because Trump, I think, will soar to the top. If he, if he declares, I think it's going to kind of clean out, clean this slate really quickly. I'm saying all this because I think that on, on this show, I, I am entirely dedicated, entirely dedicated to the preservation of America, the great, the unique, the extraordinary. That's the purpose of this show. And I will keep saying the things I say about the importance of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, actual freedom of speech, actual freedom of religion, limited government, the concept of federalism, the whole notion of freedom, free markets. I am dedicated to the whole American package. That's what I talk about, the real America, the America that I'm telling you 70% of Americans want back. They want their country back. They don't want what the left is doing. That's what I'm dedicated to. 
getting America back on track does not require having Donald Trump as president. He, he won't be alive forever. You know, he's, he's, you know, life goes on. He won't be alive forever. What is going to restore America is the people in this country understanding more deeply, clearly, and, and fully how important the ideas of America are, how important the promises, the values of America are. The whole notion of uh, recited in the Declaration of God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we're all equal, that we must have blind justice, that we must have freedom and free markets and freedom of speech and all the freedoms that our country was founded on, which are all under a threat, all under threat today in America from the left. That's what my show is about. So what I just said about Trump, I think he probably is going to declare, and I think he'll pretty much clear the field. I think it'll make it less likely that the Democrats are going to be comfortable indicting him or pushing the indictment. Maybe they still will. Uh, they'll claim it's not political. It's just a result of the evidence, but it's utterly political, and that's all that it is. But whether Donald Trump is ever president of America again, whether he got reinstated tomorrow because we finally admitted Biden stole the election, whether he runs and wins in 2024, does not determine whether or not America can retain and be America. That's up to you and us. It's up to the people. It's up to the people who understand America's unique and extraordinary greatness. Donald Trump was an extraordinary leader. His victory in 2016 was the big, fat boulder in the road America needed to save itself from what the Obama years were doing, which is pushing America over the cliff to socialism and eventual totalitarianism. This is how Obama thinks. Obama is still running America today under Biden because Biden was you know, the easy person for him to place in there because he's utterly malleable. He's not mentally fit. He doesn't know what's going on. So Obama is still running the show Trump did great things for America, winning in 2016 and for the four years, despite having the Congress barely help him at all. But you, we've all got to get clear that the idea, I mean, I, if Trump wins, if Trump runs and he wins, he, will, uh, he learned a lot in the time he was president and learned a lot in these last few years, recognizing how deep and ugly the deep state is, how it's a, a uniparty in Washington. It's not just the Democrats versus the Republicans. There's a small cabal of people in Washington who still love this country. They understand what it is. They see what's at stake. Donald Trump learned a lot in this time. He's been sitting home and been out of the, uh, the, the uh, White House. So my final points in this segment before I hit one last extremely short and fun thing, which is I want to show you these pictures uh, of the universe that are coming out of the satellite. But um, I want to just say Holding on to America, preserving America, standing up for America, getting rid of critical race theory, the transgender, you know, lunacy that is being pushed on kindergartners, all sorts of the leftist ideology is not going to be corrected and removed whether Donald Trump is president or not. And he's not going to be corrected or removed whether he declares next Monday or not. The long haul in defending and saving America is in the hands of the American people. It takes every single person to pick your avenue, your issue, your place, and get in that fight and stand up and do not stop talking. Do not stop standing up for this country. I, I think that Donald Trump is probably going to declare, and I think he's probably going to pretty much clear the field. And you may have some, I won't even give a name, but I, I know a few people considering uh, running, I think they'll probably drop out. But the really important thing to recognize is Donald Trump did tremendous good for America. He's learned a lot. He'll do more tremendous good if he were back in office in 2024. But saving America is not his job. It is our job. It's every single American's job. 
One last quick thing, because I'm always so intense and serious on this show. I just want to share with you some images, and you can just go ahead and put them up there, Joe. And Mr. Joe is happily helping today uh, as my, so there's, you've probably been hearing, NASA, NASA, National Soci uh, the um, Aeronautical and Space Administration, has the James Webb Spice, uh, Space Telescope, and we're getting first looks at the most extraordinary extraordinary images. The one you're looking at now is the edge of a nearby star-forming region called NGC 3324 in the uh, Carina Nebula. Now there's another, I sent uh, Joe a bunch of pictures. These have come from the, you can put the next one up if you're able to separate them. Okay, uh, the next one, side-by-side uh, -side comparison shows observations of the Southern Ring Nebula in near-infrared light on the left and mid-infrared light on the right. I'm telling you, these images are extraordinary. First time seen. We can go to the next one if you would. Uh, the next one we have, yeah, I mean, look at this stuff. I, 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 I have to tell you, I love space. I, lo I love thinking about it. I love the enormity of it. Um, this is a visual grouping of five galaxies. So, you know, one galaxy is beyond the capacity of any human brain to picture. This is five galaxies. Um, so I'm just, I, I guess, you know, I could go on and on about that. The point I wanted to make about it, beside that I love American ingenuity, I love that we're exploring space. I think space exploration is vital and good. I don't like when people say, oh, we shouldn't spend money on space until we fed every person on planet Earth. Space exploration is vital. But I really want to close the show by saying about those pictures is the idea that when you see those images, the enormity of the universe, when you see the beauty and complexity of human life, when you see, you know, where, where did things come from? I'm getting at how can you see those things and not believe in God, not recognize there's a God? I, it's really almost incomprehensible. Things on the human scene like hope, optimism, love, faith, uh, all these wonderful qualities, where could they come from? If everything just comes from a cluster of cells, or as one person said to me, oh, we're just all made of stardust. You know, this whole, I, I mean, I love space exploration just for the beauty of it, but I also love it, also love it, because I think it helps more people see the enormity of the universe, the beauty of it, and actually helps more people recognize this didn't come from a big bang, and it didn't come from, I don't even know what the other theories are, this notion that we have a God-created world and a God-created universe is vital. It's vital for more Americans to get back to and recognize that because part of what the left has been doing for decades is pushing God out of life society, pushing God out of relevance in American life. And this is very, very, is not only harmful, but it's just contrary to what the truth is. I close this show every day by telling you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started today talking about no charges for Colbert's capital invasion staffers, uh, far more similarities and differences in actions of Colbert staffers and the January 6th protesters, no arms, unauthorized entry into congressional offices, but J6 labeled insurrectionists and being thrown in jail, solitary confinement with recommended jail sentence as long as 16 years for nonviolent actions. Colbert staffers will face no charges. The Biden DOJ is a disgrace to the legacy and traditions of America, an utter mockery of blindfolded lady justice, a politicized, weaponized arm of the radical left. We must pray for America. And government and social media collusion, why it matters, lawsuit in Missouri and Louisiana, specifically alleging collusion between the government and social media to suppress and censor free speech. 
judge has ordered discovery to proceed, not with the Biden team hope would happen. Dr. Shiva in Massachusetts has previously documented government Twitter cooperation. And by the way, this is often talked about at great length on the website, The Conservative Treehouse, all the uh, government agencies and which outlets they uh, constantly leak to. Institutional moral rot and tyranny is being exposed. Unprecedented in U.S. history. Will Americans insist that it be stopped? And on 2024 presidential hopefuls, much to do about Trump's impending announcement for 2024 elections. Plans too early or just right for preempting the field and for preempting and framing the January 6th indictment. None of the usual rules for timing and political strategy are relevant. Elephant in the room, the stolen 2020 election, an immediate radical leftist deconstruction, destruction of America. Trump was the victim and the target of the 2020 steal. The American people, the MAGA millions, see Trump as having the first right to run again, and everyone else can wait. Announcement coming in Monday on Monday in Washington, um, in D.C., um, just could be. And finally, new pictures of the universe, why it matters to you. James Webb Telescope is a wondrous human achievement, a true technological marvel. Initial photos are breathtaking, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, vastness of the universe, almost beyond human comprehension. Evidence of, the, of intelligent design, beauty, and order, all from a big bang? I don't think so. Potential for moving the world thought toward reverence for divinity, i.e. away from the raw materialism of transhumanism and other whack-job leftist theories. And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to speak truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can